Once again, I'd like to come to you just uh, thanking you for being here. I see we've got a couple of future members available. If y'all want to get with them after church and shake their hands, uh, the Leggetts have a baby up here, and there's another one back here in the back. Make sure you reach these new members of our church. And also, I'd like to welcome Alton and Pearl back. Uh, Alton has gone through a hard time, and we're just glad to have you back, buddy. Appreciate it. I'm here this morning to represent, uh, to represent uh, not represent, but to uh, introduce you to Dr. Sandy Marks, his, his wife Cynthia. They have come to us from Sanford, North Carolina. Uh, Sandy is pr currently the senior consultant for church help, uh, church revitalization. Yeah, for the uh, Baptist Association, we found out uh, while we were talking that he's uh, wanders on one of his committees that he's in charge of. So uh, we have some connection with him, but uh, we haven't heard him preach before, but he was rep uh, represented to me by Terry Stockman, so I know it's going to be a good sermon. I hope you're ready for it. Uh, he was a pastor at Alexis Church uh, for 15 years. Uh, just recently, and uh, so we know it's going to be a good service, and I, I thank you, Dr. Sandy, for, for what you're going to give us. The choir's going to sing, then you're up.
choir for leading us this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. And while you're turning there, just want to say how delighted I am to be here with you this morning. Uh, as uh, they've shared with you already, I'm sort of in a transition. Uh, I had pastored Alexis Baptist Church for 15 years, uh, and I had been pastoring uh, in ministry for 20-some years. So I'm in that transition of uh, not preaching every week, which is a big transition. So I'm delighted to be here, but I'm even more delighted to be at a church where a couple of people tell me that I can preach as long as I want. So yeah, that's a great place to be uh, this morning, but I am excited to be here. I do uh, say to you that I will pray with you as you uh, and your pastor search uh, team continues to work and pray. I will say this, uh, continue to be patient and continue to allow the process to take its uh, course as you work through there. Uh, And I know it's difficult sometimes for a church and uh, not having a full-time pastor aboard, but there is one thing worse than having not having a full-time pastor aboard, and, and that's having the wrong full-time pastor aboard. That's not a good thing for anyone, him nor you. So I would say continue to pray, continue to ask the Lord's leadership, and uh, things will be great as he is faithful. Amen? He's faithful in leading. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 10, a story that you're familiar with, uh, and uh, I want to begin reading at verse 25. And uh, we will read down to verse uh, long about 37. Very familiar passage. It says, As behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbors yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he said, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Then verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds and poured oil and and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend... I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray together. Fathers, we bow today. We're delighted to be in this place, to gather in your name, to worship under the authority of your word and under the influence of your Holy Spirit. That's, Lord, not just in this place, Father, but in each and every one of us. So, Father, we pray in the next few moments, Lord, that you will, through your word and through your spirit, Father, speak into our lives. And, Lord, transform us into the men and women that you would have us to be. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Now, the passage that we're dealing with this morning, we've got, we've got to understand that it's part of a larger context. 
Uh, it, it's given in the context of Jesus having sent out his disciples uh, and his messengers to announce his coming to the world. And they have since returned and have proclaimed the message of the kingdom that Jesus uh, had, had, had asked them to. And, and they responded with a prayer of praise, which he thanked them. If you look back in verse 21 of chapter 10, you'll see this. In that same way, he rejoiced. In the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So that's sort of the context of what we're dealing with this morning. And as this passage sort of opens up, uh, we see one of the wise and one of the intelligent that are coming to Jesus. Now, typically what I do when I preach is, as we're going to deal, we're going to walk through this passage. We're going to sort of go section by section. And then at the end of my message, I'm going to deliver to us some points of application. Uh, that's just the way I love to share God's Word. So let's look together as we just take this sort of section by section. First of all, we see that a lawyer comes and he asks a legal question. Look at verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up, and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Now think about who this gentleman is. He was an expert in the law. He had a string of, of degrees, a, st- a string of seminary degrees uh, behind his name. And notice that he's careful not to call Jesus Rabbi. He, he, he has an earned degree, and he's proud of that degree. And he's not interested in what Jesus does or does not know if he doesn't have the same degree behind his name. So he comes to himself, he comes to Jesus, very proud of himself and and, and very much in a state of arrogance. And as our story begins, uh, one day with a question that's being asked. Now, I want you to know that there's nothing wrong with questions. Questions are fantastic, questions are great. But what, what was improper about this question was its improper motive. There's not a bad question, but there are improper motives. And so as this man comes to Jesus, he has an improper motive. This man is described as a lawyer. He's a student of the Torah. His profession was that he was not into lawsuits. He wasn't into litigation. But he's in the studying and teaching of the Torah, of the law of God. So we know several things about him. He's sophisticated. He, he prides himself on being this expert in the law. No one has spent as much time studying the Torah as this man has. And he has been through every possible response before he ever poses the question. So as he comes to Jesus, he's not coming to learn something. He's coming to test Jesus. And he's coming already running his mind every single possible response that he can think of that Jesus is going to give him. The, the lawyer, as we see, is determined to take Jesus down a notch or two. He hasn't come to learn. He's come to put him in his place. Actually, he's come seeking heresy. That's his motivation. And so accordingly, the question that he, he comes with... He, he comes with his own preconceived notion. So it tells us that he has the wrong mindset to begin with. He asks, what shall I do to inherit what? Eternal life. So what can I do for salvation? So that assumes that he has a mindset of what? We earn our salvation. Works provides for us our salvation. So we can tell by his question that he has that mindset. He assumes that he's able to do something in order to earn this eternal life. So he asks this legal question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice what Jesus does. 
He poses a legal question that Jesus gives him a legal answer. Look at verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your might, and love your neighbor, he says, as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, Jesus answers this, this legal expert's question with a question of his own. And, and this man thinks of himself of, as an expert in the Old Testament law. Well, what does the law have to say, Jesus is saying? What do you read it? Jesus gives him a very simple answer. And then he sends this expert in the law back to the Word of God, back to the law. And he's basically, Jesus is saying, you're the expert, you tell me. You've dedicated your entire life to studying the Word. You tell me. So, so Jesus is not interested in, in teaching this man new information. He's not interested in sharing with this man new facts about life or about anything. What he wants this man to do is actually just act upon the truth that he already knows. Now, that's where Jesus is pushing him. What does the law say? That was a question that any Jewish boy can answer. And here Jesus has posed this to a teacher of the law. And you know, the fact that Jesus points us to the law tells us something about Christianity. It, it, it's not something new. It's not something recent. It's something that's rooted in the Old Testament. Beginning in Genesis, we see the message of Jesus Christ all the way through. It's not the Old Testament, and then boom, something happens out of God's control, and then there's the New Testament. No, we see Christ all through the Old Testament. And so that's what we see here. So the law, the lawyer answers this question by quoting two Old Testament Deuteronomy passages. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, it's customary to have this, if you remember, written on a phylactrophy or, or and placed on, on, on your arm or placed on your, on your forehead. So this lawyer actually could, if he couldn't remember it, he could actually just sort of roll up his sleeve and be able to share this passage of Scripture. And, and, and the first part is love God. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's Deuteronomy 6. That's important to notice that it says, Love the Lord your God. He's not just any God. He, he is the God. He, he, is, he is the Lord. He is Yahweh. Now, now notice the extent of this love. It's an all-consuming love. A love for God is not just a small little emotional affection or a flutter that you have. A love for God that described in Scripture is, is an all-consuming love. It's your mind. It's your heart. It's your soul. It's everything that you are. It's, it's almost like it's this fanatical love that is described here in the book of Deuteronomy. To love him supremely more than anything else that you could possibly love. Love the Lord your God with everything you have. And then the second part after love God is love man. And actually he's not quoting from Deuteronomy, he's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the son of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, Leviticus nineteen eighteen. So love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this context in Leviticus is, is found in the passage that, forgi- uh, that forbids the Jewish people from oppressing the poor. It commands them not only to love the Jews, but, but to love the stranger, to love the foreigner as, as well. Leviticus 19, verse 34. You can go back and see that. 
And, and, and the Jews of Jesus' day had perverted that verse because Jesus corrected them in Matthew's gospel he, it, in where they had uh, misquoted it in Matthew 5.43. Jesus said, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemies. You remember when Jesus corrupted, uh, he, he, just, and he, he just brought correction to that misinterpretation? That's what they had done. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say, hate your enemies. But the Jews of that time had, had distorted that verse. And, 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 and so Jesus says, you need to love your neighbors as yourself. Now, notice what happens. It's a fascinating story. Jesus didn't contradict the man's answer. Instead, he tells him that he's answered what? Correctly. You have answered correctly. If you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your being, and love your neighbors yourself, then, then you have eternal life is what he's saying. But as the story unfolds, we notice something about this man. Look at verse 29. We, we see that a self-righteous motive is revealed. Look at verse 29. But he desiring to do what? Justify himself. Said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So as we read that, the, the, the words of this man indicated that what? He realized that he fell short of this law. He realized that he didn't fulfill that, that he felt short of the, of the demands of the law that he himself had just said. He had verbalized it, and then he recognized that he was falling short of that. Because, you know, you don't have to justify yourself if, unless you're what? Unless you're wrong. And, and, and the very fact that he was wishing to justify himself indicates that he has some awareness that he is lacking what the law demands. And that's the purpose of the law, is it not? The purpose of the law is to what? Show us how short we fall. In fact, Paul says it's a mirror. It's the, it's the school teacher. It's the, it's the master that shows us that we cannot, within our own self, meet the righteousness of God. So the law was doing exactly what the law was intended to do when it showed this man that he did not, no matter how good he was, meet the requirements of the law that he himself had just stated. So he tries to justify himself. And you know, the law just sort of binds us if we live by it. And, and, and those laws that we seek to live by, if we're going to live by those laws and, and try to earn our own righteousness, then that law is going to do something. That law is going to convict us. And that law is going to place upon us, according to Galatians 3, Galatians 3 uh, verse 10, is going to place upon us a curse. Paul says in Galatians 10, uh, 3, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of law. So in other words, Paul is saying, if you're going to live by the law, you better live by every single one of them, and you better do them every single one perfect, because if you don't fulfill the law perfect, then you what? You failed, and you're cursed by that law. So this man has come telling Jesus and, and seeking the, 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 to condemn him, but instead he founds out that he himself has been condemned, but there's someone else even greater than this man that is facing condemnation when we approach the law that way, and that's you and I. Not only did he discover that he could not fulfill the law and that he didn't have the righteousness for uh, eternal life, but you and I discover the same thing. We cannot, within our own selves, achieve righteousness that's required to enter into heaven because we all fall short when looking at ourselves with the law of God. 
And, 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 and we can try to justify ourselves or whatever we want to do, but ultimately what we have to do, if we're going to try to live by God's law, is we're eventually going to have to lower the bar of God's law because we cannot achieve the law with our own selves, with our own righteousness. And so this guy, he chooses, he chooses the latter. He, 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 he does this by, by seeking to limit the law, okay? Who is my neighbor? So we've got this guy, that this lawyer, that he's looking for a legal loophole. You, you see, this man wasn't prepared to love his neighbor. He wasn't prepared to love some insignificant person. He, 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 he was too proud for that. Uh, he, he wanted to interpret neighbor as one of whom he approved. Perhaps maybe another Orthodox Jew, or perhaps one of his religious or, or, or social equals. So, who is my neighbor, he's asking, hoping that he'll find a loophole and be able to live according to his own attitudes or his own righteousness. Who is my neighbor? See, this lawyer asked an abstract question. And, and the lawyer wanted to leave the discussion in the abstract. And that's what we do a lot of times. We want to leave a lot of biblical principles in the abstract. But Jesus doesn't li- allow him to leave it in the abstract Jesus brings it into reality. He brings it into their life. Jesus is always very specific. And so Jesus tells a story about the specific act of neighbors. Look at verse 30. Jesus replied, A young man going down to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him what? Half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was coming down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and he gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend... I will repay you when I come back. Now, the setting for this parable is is one that we're familiar with. It was a road that ran from Jericho to Jerusalem. And if you've ever been to Israel, you've been on this road. They they, they surely took you there. Jericho lies 600 feet below sea level, and Jerusalem is 250 feet above sea level. So you have this huge uh, difference in elevation. So, so we begin to picture what's, what's happening there. It's, it's this road that sort of winds around these crevices and all these dried up rivers and wadis and different things there. And you have all of these uh, rocks and all of these little canyons there. And then traveling along this road would, would be equivalent today of, of walking in the dark back alley of an inner city. I mean, this is a place where thieves love to, to just be there and attack people because they could just come out of nowhere. They never saw him coming. And the man in our story was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And then the fact that he had come from Jerusalem applies that he was probably Jewish. But, but the passage doesn't tell us that. But, but, but he's merely, according to the scripture, just a man that fell into this desperate situation. And while he's traveling, what happens? He's attacked. And, and, and they beat him and they rob him and they leave him there for dead. There are no medical supplies or anything around. And if somebody doesn't do something, he's going to what? He's going to die. And then the two walk by. 
Now, we've got to break this down because we're too familiar with this sometimes. The two walk by, and, and, and we've got to remember Micah 6, 6 through 8, delivers a strong indictment against the Jews who were, who, were, who were ready to come and sacrifice thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of, of oil, but neglected justice and, and kindness and humility to God. you got to remember Micah's huge word to those uh, Jews who just simply went through the rituals of their faith. I mean, Micah lays out through God's word there, he lays out just an indictment against them that they were just worshiping but it wasn't changing their lives. And in the course of the story, two different men come by. The first was a priest. And Luke's careful to tell us something, that he's on the way down. He had completed probably his week of service of the temple, and now he's on the way home. And it's not a matter then of choosing whether to worship in the temple or whether to stop this man on this way and help this man. He had time, and he had the means to help this guy, but he chose not to. Now, it's easy to be like that priest, isn't it? To come and, 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 and just be a part of church and, and go through the ritual of worship on Sunday and, and, and then, then go back to Jericho for, for the rest of the week and not let anything that we participated in on Sunday have an effect on the rest of our lives. It's easy to be like this priest. And the second man come was a, was a Levite. He, he was permitted to serve in and around the temple also. He, he, he could easily be... Uh, compared to, to a church leader, a deacon of the church, a Sunday school teacher. So both of these men were men that were attached to ministry. Both were looked upon of, of great respect. Both of these were people that served the Lord. And in both cases, their response to the suffering man was the same. They avoided him, they avoided his pain, and they continued on their way. You know... I'm one of those that ask questions about everything. I wonder what went through their minds. I wonder why they thought, you know, maybe they thought that, hey, there's probably robbers there waiting. They're going to ambush me or whatever when I, when I get there. Uh, I, I, I don't want to be ceremonially unclean. I wonder what went through their mind. It, it, it doesn't matter, though, really, what went through their mind. We're not told their thoughts. We're just simply told their actions. They passed by on the other side. No help, no words of encouragement, nothing they offered. And the ironic thing about this is that part of their ministerial function involved helping those who were in need. A part of the priestly duty uh, was to serve as the public health official. A part of the duty of the Levi was the distribution of, of foods and, and funds to the poor and needy. So both of these guys were charged with those responsibilities, but both of them chose to walk around. And then as our story unfolds, we come to the one who stopped. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Uh, I don't have to tell you, there's no love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans, that they had been enemies for a very long time. They had spent centuries torturing each other. The Jews had gone in and burned down the temple of the Samaritans completely to the ground. The Samaritans had responded uh, by sneaking into Jerusalem and their temple and, and defiling it. So back and forth, this went throughout the decades. So the very reason that Jericho's road was so traveled like it was was so that the Jews wouldn't have to go near Samaria. 
So there's no love loss there. And we also know that the, that the Samaritans, they, they were not doctrinally correct. They, they didn't recognize all of the Old Testament. Uh, they had rewritten some of the portions of, of the Bible. They didn't accept it as authoritative for their lives. So the Samaritans were not doctrinally correct, but, but he was correct in his love, in, in, his, in his actions. He had a love that was ready to take action. Now, notice a few things about mercy Mercy and compassion. First of all, we see the activity of mercy. The Samaritans' mercy uh, was active instead of passive. He didn't just say, poor fella, I hope you get to feeling better. I'm going to put you on the prayer list. I'm going to pray for you when I get back home. That that wasn't his, his, his mercy. His mercy caused him to get actively involved in this man's life. His, 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 his mercy... Uh, involved demonstrating his mercy. And, and this story tells us something about mercy. It, it, it's not defined in some mushy sort of sentiment, uh, sentiment. It's defined in our actions. If we don't act out of our mercy, then we don't have mercy. So Jesus almost always had a theology of action. It's not enough to just believe certain doctoral statements. We have to be allowing those to be reflected in our lives. And we also see the cost of mercy. I mean, it cost the Samaritan some, didn't it? I mean, it it cost him his time. It cost him his effort to get involved. It cost him his money. And you know, mercy's really not mercy. I don't believe until it's cost us something. Until we get personally involved in something. Then we see the motivation of his mercy. What prompted the actions of this guy? What prompted the actions of this Samaritan? Was he doing a deed in order to work his way to heaven? Was he striving to meet some religious standard? He acted because the word of God tells us. Because of what reason? He felt compassion. The motivation of mercy is always compassion. And then we see the endurance of mercy. He went further than just meeting the immediate need. He looked ahead to see what the stranger's long-term needs would be, and he provided even expense for those. Hey, when I come back by, I'll pay for anything else it costs you. So we see mercy revealed in his actions. Now that we've unpacked all that, I want to, I want to give you just three things of application. Because my belief is, we don't read the Word of God for just information. We read the Word of God for application into our lives. What is it saying to me? Here's our first point of application. If our study of Scripture does not inform our action, our study is worthless. Let me say that again. If our study of Scripture does not inform our actions, then our study is worthless. We see that in the lawyer. Uh, this guy had, had said in Bible study after Bible study after Bible study. I mean, while everybody else was out playing and, and playing cowboys and Indians and all of those things that little boys play, this guy was studying the Word of God. He had dedicated his entire life to studying Scripture. Everyone else is having a great time. He is focused in studying Scripture. But here's the sad part. part. It had made no difference in his life. Now, before we throw too many rocks at this guy, we, we have to be careful that we're not the same. 
We, we have to be careful that, that we don't just keep gathering and, and, and getting intellectually fat in our minds, but it making no difference in the way that we live our life. We have to be careful that our religious walk doesn't become just Bible study after Bible study after Bible study and worship service after worship service after worship service, and it not change the way we live our lives. This guy had dedicated every moment almost of every day to studying the word, but it had not changed the way he lived his life. Now, folks, as I began to look at our churches across the landscape of North Carolina from 30,000 feet, man, it's quite a shift from where I've been. But one of the things I'm beginning to notice that a lot of our churches are filled with people that study constantly God's Word, but never allow it to dictate their life. We may know the Greek words. We may know the Hebrew words. We may even do all of this exegetical work. But listen, folks, if it doesn't change the way we treat our neighbor, then it's worthless. It has to change who we are. So go to your Bible studies, asking the Word of God and the Spirit of God to so grab your life that you can't live the same when you walk out the doors, that you're radically changed. But there's a second thing. We, we, we notice, first of all, if our Bible study doesn't change the way we live, then it's worthless. Secondly, is this. If our worship does not motivate our hearts to help the helpless, our worship is worthless. Luke is careful to tell us that the priest was on his way down. He had completed his week of service in the temple. He was on his way home. And and, and it's not a matter for him of whether uh, to choose whether he can worship in the temple or whether he can stop and help this man. He, he, He had the time. He had the means. He even had the motivation. He'd been worshiping the Lord. He had been involved in serving and worshiping the Lord. But that act of worship had not touched his heart. So we, we, we got to stop and back away for a moment. You know, one of the biggest discussions probably in our churches across the state is worship. What is worship? How do you worship? What instruments do you use in worship? We have all of these different discussions. People have even called them the, the worship wars that churches are encountering. But listen, that has little, if nothing, to do with anything. What has to do with worship is our heart. It doesn't matter if we're singing hymns. It doesn't matter if we're singing choruses. It doesn't matter if we're beating drums. It doesn't matter if we're playing flutes. It doesn't matter if we're beating trash can lids. If our hearts are in tune with God. It changes who we are. When we have been in the presence of Almighty God, it's impossible to walk away the same. Everywhere you read in the Old Testament and even in the New, where people were in the presence of God, they couldn't walk away to the same old life that they'd been. They couldn't walk away the same person. If they had been in the presence of God, their lives were changed. And what's happening in so many of our churches is that we come to worship and we sing songs, we may raise our hands, we may play instruments, and we may even give a little emotion. But when we walk out the door, nothing happens and if the worship of God doesn't transform your heart that you begin to see people like Jesus saw them then you haven't worshipped I don't care what instruments you may or may not have had 
And what's happening is our churches are being filled with people that worship but aren't changed. When we worship and our hearts are broken before God, two things happen. We see God for who He really is. He, he, comes, he becomes more than just some uh, the theological uh, out there term. He becomes personal as we see him as Isaiah did, high and lifted up. And we notice his righteousness. And then we see our brokenness. And then we see the brokenness of the world when we have truly worshipped our living God. And you see, that propels us to help those that are helpless. That propels us to stop in the ditches or wherever it is in life that we encounter those that their lives are broken and need to be put back together by the only one that's capable of putting things back together, and that's Jesus Christ. When we've truly worshipped Him, we have His eyes, we have His compassion. And, and, and there's a third thing, and we're almost done. Hold with me. Proper study of Scripture... And proper worship, the two we've talked about, proper study of Scripture, proper worship of Jesus results in neighborly attitudes. Now look at verse 36. Interesting. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Verse 37, he said... The one who showed mercy, he can't even make himself say the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and what? And do likewise. Now, you got to go back and remember the very first question that brought about this parable. The lawyer had come face to face with the law, and the law commanded him to love your neighbor as yourself. This brought up the question, who is my neighbor? And instead of answering the question, Jesus told this story, and then he followed up with a question of his own. Who proved to be the neighbor? Or in other words, who acted neighborly? Now, do you see the point that Jesus is making? But the point is that the guy is asking the completely wrong question. The question is not who is your neighbor. The real question is whether or not you're going to be a neighbor. That's what Jesus pushed back on this guy. The real question, buddy, you're looking for a loophole. I know you're mine. You want to know who your neighbor is. And listen, I want you to understand that you are to be the neighbor. You are to act neighborly to those that you encounter. Those that you see are alienated. Those that you see are broken. Those that you see their lives are in the ditch. You are be, to be the neighbor no matter who they are, no matter where they are. If they come into contact with you, you are to be the neighbor. That's the real question, is whether or not we're going to be neighborly. Not who our neighbor is. But the real question is, are you going to be a neighbor? But there's something even greater here. You see, the story of the Good Samaritan is really the story of Jesus. He's the one who has come to you and me 
and rescued us at a great personal cost. He's the Savior who, who, who saves. He found you. He found me when I was helpless, when I was hopeless, because I, like the lawyer, could not do anything to appease the law of God. I cannot earn my eternal life. So I was helpless. That's what the law is intended to do, to reveal to you your helplessness. And, and, and then that's part of God's plan, to reveal to you your helplessness. And then in His grace, He sends to you His Son at great cost that's able to provide for you salvation. Oh, this picture is a picture of Jesus. Because you were like me, you were broken and robbed in a ditch. You were helpless in the ditch. There's nothing you could do to save yourself. Left, left there, you would have perished. But along came Jesus and reached out to you, motivated by mercy, motivated by grace, costly mercy, mercy costly grace that would take him to a cross in order that you might have eternal life. And now, he says, you do the same. He's not telling you to be Jesus. Oh, wait, maybe he is. Maybe he's telling you to go and to show mercy to all those you see that are in desperate need. You look at this in the culture that we live in when our world is obviously broken. (laughs) I mean, I'm not a political person, but whether you're a Democrat or Republican, it's obvious that we're broken. Amen? Amen. And, and, And the answer for us is not a political answer. The answer for us is a spiritual answer. And while they're doing all that they do there and, and all of that, and those, those things are important, important, we need to be involved in the political process. Hear me say that. But what's going to put America back together again is when the churches, the people of God, begin to act neighborly to those who are broken and extend to them the love of Christ regardless of who they are regardless of where they're from, regardless of what they've encountered in their life, Jesus came to save all folks. But in order for that to happen, we have to be transformed by the Word of God and we have to be transformed by the worship of God. Because left to ourselves, we'll walk around every single time. But compelled and driven and motivated by the Word of God and the worship of God, we can't help but to stop. Because we've experienced it ourselves. So church, I want to ask you. We're at a time of of evaluating ourselves. I want to ask you this morning, first of all, do you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior? Or have you experienced His wonderful grace? The the only answer to the to the sin situation in your life. Because you're never going to clean yourself up. You're never going to reach heaven with your own righteousness. It's impossible. Maybe you're here today and, and, and your word for the day is you need to receive the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You need to surrender to Him and, and, and just give his, your life to Him. 
Or maybe you're here today and, man, you've done that, but through the process of living out your faith, uh, your study of God's Word has just become an intellectual exercise. And, man, you gather it and you read it and you've sat in Bible study after Bible study after Bible study. Listen, all of us know more than we do already. Amen? All of us know more than we do. And maybe we want to come today and say, Lord, I want to allow your Word to motivate me to do that which I already know that I should be doing. Maybe you want to come today and say, Lord, I want my worship to be more than just about music and more than just about a time or more than just about this or that or the other thing. I want my worship to be about my heart experiencing your presence in a tremendous way. And folks, when we allow God's word to transform us. And when we understand worship for what it truly is, it'll transform us and propel us into reaching those that are all around us. Fathers, we come today, we come, Lord, recognizing that we, like this lawyer, Lord, we fall short. Lord, we, like this lawyer, Lord, we try to rationalize, and Lord, we try to lower the bar, Father, to make ourselves appear more spiritual than we are. But Father... Help us to recognize in these few moments, uh, Lord, just to be honest with ourselves as where we are spiritually. Lord, there may be one here this morning that needs to surrender their life to you. Lord, there may be one here this morning that is honest enough in their own hearts to say that their study of the Word of God has just become more of just an intellectual exercise. And Lord, uh, they really haven't allowed your Word to dictate their life. Oh, Lord, maybe there's one here this morning, Lord, that says their worship has just become just a a ritual that they go to and go through. And, Lord, doesn't impact who they are the rest of the week. Father, maybe we would be honest enough this morning to bow before you. And, Lord, confess where we have fallen short. Lord, not try like this lawyer and justify ourselves. But, Father, just to be honest and agree with what you already see in our lives. Lord, these next few moments are crucial. Allow us to be honest and respond to your word, for these are your people called by your name. Father, give them the response that they need in their heart, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing together.